Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate. And today we're joined by Michael Miller and Sam Gregg. Michael Matheson Miller is Chief of Strategic Initiatives, a senior research fellow and director of the Center for Social Flourishing here at the Acton Institute. He is the director and producer of the award-winning documentary Poverty, Inc., and the Poverty Cure DVD series, and was the founding director of Poverty Cure, which promotes entrepreneurial solutions to poverty in the developing world. Longtime listeners to this podcast will remember Sam Gregg from his previous appearances here. He is now the Distinguished Fellow in Political Economy and Senior Research Faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research and an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute. Michael is the author of the essay, The Prosperity Pyramid Scheme, and Sam is the author of the essay, Mistaken About Poverty, a review of Matthew Desmond's book, Poverty by America. Both essays appear in the fall 2023 issue of our magazine, Religion and Liberty, which focuses on the issue of poverty. RNL is available at select Barnes and & Noble and Books A Million stores across the country, as well as many boutique bookstores. But you can save the time and trouble by subscribing to get our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times per year for only $29.99. We'll include a link where you can subscribe in the show notes for today's episode, along with the link to Michael and Sam's essays. This week, we'll be discussing both of these essays and the larger issue of poverty. I want to start with Michael. Uh, the title, again, of your essay is The Poverty Pyramid Scheme. Michael, what is your essay about? Thanks, Eric, for having me on the show. It's good to be with you and Dan and Sam. So, <clears throat> so I actually didn't come up with the title. That was uh, Anthony Sacrimony, who's clever, or you, someone more clever than I came up with the title. Uh, but the general idea of the, of the essay is that we often take the sources of our prosperity for granted. And so I begin with a little story. I remember we did a, a survey. It was actually with people who were participating in an Acton program of entrepreneurs. And I asked them, what do you thought were the most important thing, elements of being an entrepreneur? And gave them a list. And at the bottom were things like private property, rule of law, and free association. Now, this is a, obviously not a representative sample, but it's an interesting sample because these are people who already are thinking in a sense of an Acton way and taking seriously institutions of justice. And yet it was right at the bottom. They weren't really thinking about it as essential to entrepreneurship. Um, of course, if you pushed them, I think they probably would have. But, but it, it struck me because, and this is really the source of the, the, the theme of the essay, is that why is it that some countries have been able to develop and other countries haven't? And it's not that the people are somehow smarter or simply better educated or et cetera. I mean, these are like way downstream. There are these fundamental institutions of justice that we take for granted that exist, like clear title to land, rule of law, ability to get your court case heard, ability to register your business, uh, non-compete laws, ability to participate in free exchange without undue burden or heavy taxes or price re setting by the government that 
when people have these opportunities or these institutions, this, these conditions, they create lots of prosperity. And when they don't, well, they don't. And so the, the essay really looks at these institutions, but not only the institutions, but the um, specifically the philosophical, theological, and religious sources of these institutions. Where did they come from? And I focus especially on the Jewish and Christian tradition as a source of these institutions in the West. Michael, you, as I noted in the intro to this podcast, were the director of the film Poverty, Inc., um, which personally for me was was very influential, not just from the perspective of you know, what I learned about the international aid and relief structure uh, out there, but also because I, I thought that it was really one of the first and best examples that I've seen of doing filmmaking and storytelling from, you know, I would say our movement's perspective. I thought it was particularly well done. That's now coming up on its 10-year anniversary next year, I believe, in 2024. From 10 years on, um, what have you learned from you know, both that experience and in the intervening time that has changed or amplified your understanding of these issues? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. I'm glad you found it um, uh, well done. You have high standards, so it means a lot. Um, so I think a couple things stand out to me over 10 years. Um, recently, I was at a conference earlier this year uh, with William Easterly, who is a quite well-known development economist at NYU. And Easterly wrote a number of books called The Elusive Quest for Growth and um, uh, The White Man's Burden and The Tyranny of Experts. And it's working on a new book, in fact, uh, this year. Um, and at the conference, he went through all the problems with foreign aid. And the sad part is that the same dominant, the same dominant model of foreign aid and kind of top-down social engineering that we critique in Poverty, Inc. still exists, and it's still dominant. At the same time, we're also seeing, I think, a lot of people realizing that that model doesn't work, and it's not addressing the fundamental questions, which is not how do we get people things or what, people, what do people need, but rather what are the institutions of justice and the conditions that enable people to create prosperity in their own families and communities. And I think there's a, 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 a slow but growing movement there, and I was happy that Poverty Inc. could be part of that. Um, and I'd say the other thing that has struck me is really a, even more of a deeper appreciation of the institutions of justice that I talk about in this essay, right, private property and rule of law, and complexity. I think this is probably the thing that has, has um, I've, I've begun to appreciate more and more, and even in like a self-critique of, of previous work or things I've said is just how, how many layers upon layers upon layers of embeddedness, as you know, Eric, I like to talk about, uh, that, that we're in. It's and on the bingo card for this exactly, episode. No, I, I, I wasn't going to let that go. Um, uh, I'm going to win bingo here. Uh, but this, and what I mean by embeddedness is just the complexity of, of, of the cultural and um, uh, sociological religious life that we live in that we take for granted. I mean, the fact that like one simple example, we're speaking to each other using a cultural artifact called the English language that has developed over time. It's there, it's, it, it, it develops. And these, these, I, this idea of complexity has made me in fact more critical of the dominant views of social engineering, which I think um, 
you know, we'll often say, oh, it's the hubris of the social engineer. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's not just hubris. I think it's also a naivete uh, because we, we live in this complexity. And the, the very simple example I give in the, in the essay is, you know, it's as if I could go to your house and say, oh, let me wire your house for electricity because I know how to turn on the light switch in mine. And, and just because I, the light switch works doesn't mean I understand the sources of all that electricity. And I think that's the, the, the hubris and the naivete of the social engineer who just doesn't understand the religious and sociological complex sources of justice that have enabled us to create prosperity um, and, and still tries to go to the poor people and say, let me solve your problems for you. But they don't even understand th their own wealth. So one of the things I really enjoyed about your essay, Michael, which was wonderful, and I commend it to the readers uh, or listeners, this is an invitation to become readers, um, is the fact that it brings together this technical problem with this larger question of ideas. You know, Lord Acton used to say that the history of institutions can often be one of deceptions and illusions. And uh, institutions sometimes get hollowed out. They lose their animating force, their, their philosophical and theological foundation. In your essay, you talk about how particularly, you know, Jewish and Christian thought underlies a lot of these institutions that you think are necessary for human flourishing. Could you unpack that for the audience? Maybe give a for instance of one of these sort of theological concepts that animates this, uh, these institutions that give them their vitality and uh, orient them uh, towards uh, you know, the service of human flourishing. Well, thanks, Dan, again, for your kind words about the piece. Um, I also value your highly critical mind. So it's a good, with, with these two people in the room and Sam on the, in the video, this is, it's always a dangerous room with, you have three, three critics here. Uh, I, on the other hand, am always gentle and, and never critique anyone's uh, ideas uh, at all. Uh, so I would say, um, I think w before I answer your question, I think you, you make an important point that these things can get hollowed out. And, and so it, it also relates to the, to the, to the, maybe the corollary or a related point, that one doesn't need to understand the religious sources in order to, to benefit from them, right? And so maybe, maybe I should also even make a, a clarifying point. Like, it's okay that we don't under, that not, not everybody's supposed to understand the religious cultural sources of, of private property and justice. I mean, I only understand a little bit of it and I wrote an essay on it. So I, mean, I think, my, I guess my critique is when the social engineer who doesn't understand any of it decides to go down and become an expert and try to build things without understanding um, any of the, the say, deeper um, constituent sources that, that make it possible. That, so, so let me make that distinction, that you can, in fact, live off of it and benefit from, from without any knowledge of it all. So what would be a couple of examples? Well, um, you could take, for example, um, rule of law. So rule of law is a very... Uh, important uh, idea in economic development. There's a much stronger correlation between economic development and rule of law than there is, in fact, between democracy and rule of law, right? Because you can have democracy, uh, but you don't have rule of law uh, where there's, there's you know, equitable justice. So what do we mean by, by rule of law? Well, generally, we mean a couple of things, um, that, there's, that law is not arbitrary, uh, that it's not retroactive, that it's promulgated, that you know the law, you know, you know what it is. Um, it applies to all people equally. Um, if I take Sam Gregg to court, uh, Sam's uh, wife can't be the judge, right? It has to be, uh, it has to be a, a 
a person who's neutral or disinterested, okay? Um, and you have these kind of sources that, that come up and we see them, uh, we see them throughout the American founding and et cetera. But if we go back, uh, we see one of the great articulations, I was actually on, on um, um, I was actually on Russ Roberts' podcast many years ago about Poverty, Inc. And as I was preparing for it, I listened to one of the podcasts with a, a legal scholar from UCLA. And he talked about the importance of rule of law and how it was this kind of great insight. And I remember telling um, Russ Roberts, oh, that, that's, that's in Aquinas on his treatise in law, right, which is in the 1200s. And so if you look at Aquinas... And he says, what makes a law just? Well, again, has to be promulgated, has to apply to everyone, right? It's the rule of law, not the rule of men and so on. And then if you say, well, why do we have this idea of justice? Well, we see in the, in the in, obviously from the Greek tradition and the, in the Roman tradition, but we see if you go back into the Christian tradition and the, and the Hebrew Bible, um, we have right in Leviticus 19.16 that impartiality is essential for justice so that you don't treat the poor or the rich with special cases. So if you think about today, uh, we tend to have one or the other. Either we have a social justice idea that we need to give special value to the poor and pr preference in, in, in making a judgment, or a kind of a crony capitalism where your rich buddies get the benefits. But the Hebrew Bible is very clear, and this is echoed in the books of the New Testament in the letter of James, that Justice must be impartial. And in fact, I think even a lot of conservatives are confused about impartiality. They think impartiality is the same as neutrality, right? They say, oh, there's no neutral law. I'm like, yeah, of course, nothing's neutral. The idea that justice should be impartial is not a neutral position, right? Um, so that's this whole idea of impartiality, and of course, I'm going very quickly uh, through it, but you can see from the Hebrew Bible, you can see it uh, in, in the church fathers, you can see it in the scholastics like St. Thomas Aquinas. This develops in the medieval period, in the commercial revolution. It, it, you see it in the Magna Carta. It becomes part of Anglo, and then they're, they're by Anglo-American law. These are deep sources. And the same thing for poverty, say, say private property. And I, I, I won't go, but if, just quickly. So private property is a value. You can see this in Exodus 22. You can see it in Genesis 13. Uh, when Abraham buys a plot of land for his wife, Sarah, uh, for a, a, a burial plot. Exodus 22, you're not allowed to steal. You see it in, in, in um, uh, I think it's 2 Samuel, uh, when David, before making sacrifice to God, says, I will not make a sacrifice for something that I don't own. So he buys the, the animals from Arun of the Jebusite after the plague. Uh, you see it in um, uh, the books of the New Testament, the church fathers on, et cetera, St. Thomas Aquinas. And of course, you see it also in Aristotle and other places. But these ideas that private property is good, that justice is better than injustice, right? Why is justice better than injustice? Well, because we have a concept of the human person, of time, of the goodness of being, et cetera. These things are very, very deep and they don't just emerge from nowhere. Uh, and they're not simply technical aspects. And so they do have a technical component, right, which we want to take seriously. But those technical components, as I think, as you said, kind of quoting Lord Acton, are, are rooted in deeper um, traditions. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's another... I think this story is compelling, and I think this story is largely true. I mean, what we have in the West that's the product of classical civilization, that's a classic product of Hebrew civilization, that's a product of Christian civilization, 
on into the present day is a sort of, you know, the first time in human history we really get these institutions of justice at scale and for long durations of time in fits and starts and never perfectly unevenly distributed, but they're there, they persist. But I was thinking as I was reading your essay, there's a, there's a, there's a offhanded remark that Lord Acton makes in his History of Freedom and Antiquity in which he talks about ideas of freedom of religion. And he grounds this in this similar sort of theological story um, going back. But he's, he makes this offhanded remark that actually the first time we see this in the world is in India with Ashoka, the first Buddhist king of India. And he sort of leaves it at that. And then I was reading a biography of Swami Vivekananda recently. And when Vivekananda goes to America, the Parliament of Religions, he's really impressed by American civil society, charitable institutions. And when he goes back to India, he wants to bring that model to the Ramakrishna order. And he wants them to set up orphanages, to do famine relief. And he gets some pushback from his brother monks that say, hey, this, is, this seems like very Western. This seems like a very American idea. Um, what we want to do is we want to we pursue liberation, um, you know, from the cycle of birth and death. And he says, you know, and they say, you know, all this poverty, all this human suffering, this is just Maya anyways. This is just an illusion. And he goes, well, Vivekananda comes back and he says, you know, he goes, well, one of the things that we believe in the Hindu tradition is that Atma is Brahman. And that as a result, even this pursuit of liberation is Maya. So this is a, and he t- attempts to ground in a Hindu way, the same sort of institutions of justice that he saw in the West. Do you think it is a unique contribution or is it, is it in some way sort of historically incidental is, yes, we have this amazing legacy from these various Western traditions, but are there resources in other religious traditions that you could ground these sort of things in? That's a very big Big question, Dan. So um, let me try to give a, a, a cursory, at least first uh, answer, and maybe we should do a whole podcast on, on this uh, with more preparation. So, I mean, I'd say, so in, interesting, um, do you, what, do you remember, what's the name of the highest caste in the Kerala region? Like Jair? Jair? I oh, I don't, I don't, yeah. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not as familiar with Kerala. Okay, so it, <clears throat> it's like a segment of the highest caste, and they actually have this whole uh, charitable institutions like hospitals and everything. So if Kerala is a lot in, in southern India is very Catholic, mm-hmm. and I mean I'm not an expert in India. I've been to India once, so. Uh, but it's very interesting because you see all these institutions, these Catholic institutions there, um, and then you also see this uh, Hindu institutions of charity as well. So I think I mean there's the, so, so this is a, above my pay grade, but I do think there's a tradition at least in some parts of the uh, of, of Hindu tradition. So and then the other elements, but on the big question is it can. You asked, I think, a couple questions. Are these things incidental? One and two, can they? Are there sources we can find in other traditions? So let me separate those as, those as distinct questions. I'll answer number two first. I think yes, it's possible to find some of these things in um, in other traditions. Right? We see, for example, the ideas of justice in in the Hindu tradition, in the in the Buddhist tradition, in Islam, etc. So there's there's, a, and if if you if you take a, at all seriously, say C.S. Lewis's notion of the Tao, right? That there is at least a general idea of natural law, and of this, of course, is a huge. This is a, a you know 
a, a very big ocean to jump in because when we say there's natural law, what do we mean by natural law? Do you say, is, is natural law what men do naturally? Does that mean rape, murder, uh, <clears throat> extortion, killing, and torture are natural? Right? Or do we mean by natural law that we're a certain kind of being with a certain kind of essence. And for Tom, St. Thomas Aquinas, natural law means uh, that, or one of the ways to think about natural law is that it is the human being's participation, the cognitive participation in the eternal law, right? And there's this long debates in the medievals, as you know, uh, Dan, uh, well, do you have to be in a state of grace to have access to natural law? And, the, and, and it generally the idea comes out, no. As a human being, you're created in the image of God, Right? And as, as, as a being created in the image of God, you have access to the, you know, cloudy as it may be, that some things are good, some things are evil, some things are right, some things are wrong. All right? And of course, our senseless minds can get darkened. And of course, as St. Thomas says, we're, we get it wrong and that's why we need revelation. So these are all lots of caveats, but you asked a super hard question. So I'd say in one sense, yes, in, in all traditions, you're seeing this striving for truth. Um, this idea of justice, idea of fairness, the idea of, um, of care for the poor, et cetera. Now, so yes, I think you can find some of those things in the tradition, but we don't see that to the extent we do in the Hebrew Christian tradition, right? The Jewish and Christian tradition. Now, the question then number one was, is it incidental? And I would say, no, it's not incidental. I think it actually is, is quite, um, I, I don't want to make it, there's not like a straight line from this to capitalism or to this to like, you know, democratic America. I'm not making that, that case. Um, what I'm saying is you see that there's a deep coherent understanding Right? So let me, let me give a couple of quick examples. Right? Why? One of the foundational distinctives of the Jewish religion, and thereby the Christian religion, is that being is good. The goodness of being, right? uh, that it, the world is not made out of dragon's blood. It's not made from a demiurge, right? but God creates the world. He declares it good. And he, the world is de-divinized, right? The lamps, uh, the, the sun and the moon, Ratzinger says, are like lamps in the sky to measure time. They're not gods. Uh, this creates, means that the world is good, but also intelligible, right? And so this intelligibility, and then the idea that we're supposed to have dominion over the earth, right? And in fact, Sam Gregg, who, who's here, we should have him join in because he wrote an excellent book on reason in the West, where he actually talks about the development of science and a lot of these very ideas. In fact, it I'm, I'll, I'm going to blame Anthony Sacramoni in public, but he, I had Sam Gregg in here and he cut him out. And I, I think uh, he, I actually quote Sam because this is from a, a forthcoming book called Excluded. And um, actually I quote Sam's book, which is, uh, what's it called? Reason America. No, Reason, what? Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. Okay. All right. I always tease. I always put America. 2019. In all of, I always put America in all of his titles. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. Great book. Everybody should read it. It's a great book. And Sam deals with these things, even the question of science, right? So that, the, that the, if the world is intelligible and good and we have dominion and we're supposed to help create complete creation, this influences the scientific project. Um, if human beings are a certain kind of being, that they are not objects to be manipulated, but subjects to be respected, then this is going to impact our justice. If we have an understanding of linear time, which I write about in the essay, right, that, that there's a beginning and we're going somewhere, and this idea is of progress, all of these things are not incidental. They are essential to the Jewish and Christian understanding, and, and they do deeply shape the West in a way that they don't in other places. So I don't want to say that somehow there's no other... Um, sources for justice. I think there absolutely are, um, but not in the same way. 
and that these ideas, I think, are not incidental, but I think are part of a whole co coherent vision of the goodness of being in the created order that comes out of the Jewish and Christian religion, which takes reason very, very seriously in a way that, and, and, and suffering and goodness of being, all the things that you kind of brought up that other traditions don't. Let me ask you this, and I think we may get Sam to comment on this as well, but as you were talking, you, were, you reminded me of this piece that our colleague Stephen Barrows wrote for Detroit News, which is also published on uh, Acton's website. We'll put a link in the show notes. All the way back in 2021, which was about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the point that Steve made in that piece, uh, I'll read here from the, the, the teaser that we put on it. A sustainable government and flourishing society can only be built under the right conditions. Acknowledging the dignity of the human person, the importance of subsidiarity, social institutions, a commitment to the rule of law, and an embrace of the commercial society are necessary, but they were absent from Afghanistan largely because of Afghanistan's violent modern history. So if these things like the rule of law, um, property rights, uh, many of the things that you articulated are necessary for both justice and then to lift people out of poverty in a meaningful and sustainable way. How do you bring a society like Afghanistan with you know, its long history and as Steve notes, its violent modern history, how do you prepare a society like that to really rise out of poverty? You know, how do you bring about something like the rule of law in a society like Afghanistan that, you know, knows its own form of justice and probably not one that would mesh very well with our understanding of it here in the West. How, how do you begin to address these kind of fundamental issues upon which you begin to build the structures that are necessary to bring people out of poverty? I think that's another very complex question. And I, I don't know if I have a great answer. I mean, I think my general answer is, and it's maybe not a very optimistic one, I don't think you can. I mean, I think that there's a certain amount of kind of help or assistance people can give uh, another people, like one nation to another. Um, but that has to be, it has to be desired. I mean, I think it's like we're dealing with like, just like a human being. I, I, can't, I can't want for you something that you don't want. So if I think it's a better way or this is an opportunity, if I can say, look, Eric, this is the, you, in one sense, you kind of desire, you kind of say kind of on purpose, uh, <laughs> A, and I was like, okay, well, if you really desire A, which is, I think all human beings in one sense do desire peace and prosperity and, and opportunity to raise their family and just be left alone. I think that's a human desire, right? To live in community and have peace. I think that's, that's right. Okay, so I say to the leader, you, you, okay, this is how you get there. If you don't want to, you don't, some people don't want to get there. And so I, I, I don't know if I have a very good answer. I just don't think you can socially engineer it. I think that there has to be a sense of, of, of volition um, on, on the leaders of a people um, to want these things. And I think there's actually a lot of obstacles to that. So let's, let's move out of Afghanistan and even to say places like where I used to live in Nicaragua. You know what you see in Nicaragua, is, like now it's under communism again. When I was there, the communists had lost and the quote unquote liberals were, were in charge. And you know, it really struck me. I, was, I, I thought, this is very interesting. If you're a poor person in Nicaragua, 
Like the difference between the liberal regime and the communist regime, I don't mean in a sense of violence or like killings or something, but like just in your day-to-day life and your, you're still poor, you still don't have a lot of opportunity, you're still basically excluded. And if you think about it, in order for say a wealthy oligarchy or a wealthy group of people to be able to bring prosperity to everybody, you need more than just economic incentive. Because if I'm upper middle class or middle class, even though, say upper middle class or wealthy, I have no economic incentive if I live in a country like that, if I'm powerful, to, to create the institutions of justice for economic reasons. I only have them for, say, a deeper moral or human reasons, right? And I didn't say humanitarian reasons because I'm against humanitarianism, uh, but hu- human reasons, right? Uh, I only have that. That's going to be the driving force. I, mean, I could get into this with more detail, but I know we want to we want to get Sam in here. But I think so. My general sense is, unless you the a, a leader say the, the leaders of of Afghanistan want these things, which I don't think they do, right? There's no way to socially engineer it. The only way to do that is empire, right? And that is you you which has been done for you know millennia. Right. That the way the way the Romans got ever to be Roman was they crushed you if you weren't if you didn't do what you're told. Right. So, I mean, but I think as far as as far as like preparing the conditions, there must be the will of the leadership. And I just don't don't see that at all. Can I jump in there and um, uh, really work off Michael's uh, comments? Because I think uh, broadly speaking, I think think he's correct. So empire is part of the discussion. And uh, this, of course, ties into contemporary debates about things like colonialism and the effects of colonialism upon different parts of the world. And uh, scholars like Oxford's Nigel Bigger, who wrote a very good book on colonialism and the British Empire in particular, he talks about how the British Empire brought certain institutions and ways of acting and expectations to the different societies which had their own type of traditions of these things but were uh, weak. Uh, now, he's not denying that there is a, there's a dark side to colonialism. He's very clear about that. But he also points out that historically speaking, uh, the British Empire was an inst- uh, a, a historical phenomena that brought things like rule of law and conceptions of private property to societies where these ideas were relatively weak. So uh, empire is part of, part, certainly part of the story. The second part of the story, I think, is whether those leaders in countries in, in developing economy, which have developing economies, whether they're able to root these changes in some type of indigenous, cultural, or religious reference points that add legitimacy to these moves. Uh, And that is uh, what some countries have tried to do, to try and show, for example, well, in Islam, we have these a certain type of conception of rule of law, or we have thinkers who have written about this, or in the case of China, there's a there's a type of minority liberal in the classical sense Confucian tradition, which some of the early founders of the Chinese Republic uh, 
in, in the 1900s tried to attach Western institutions to. So that's another strategy that's had mixed results precisely because these traditions are not strong. They're there, but they're not strong. And they're overshadowed by distinctly uh, unfriendly traditions to these types of institutions that Michael is talking about. But I think that it's really in many respects, it comes down to the commitment of a country's leadership to proactively choose and then try and realize these institutions. And that can be uh, very, 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 very hard. Um, it's being carried out to a certain extent in countries like South Korea. Uh, it was certainly carried out in the context of Chile following the coup d'etat in 1973, where by the mid-1970s, the military junta decides it wants to commit itself to liberalizing the economy and strengthening property rights and all these sorts of things. And that turned out to be very successful economically, although there was obviously a very high political price to be paid for that. And of course, these leaders, to a certain extent, need to be somewhat insulated from popular pressures to do the opposite or to not make changes. So these are some of the dilemmas I think Michael's pointing to when it comes to countries embracing the types of institutions that do help us to overcome poverty in the sort of systematic way that the West has done. So there are certainly strategies uh, and ways of thinking about this that can help people living in developing countries to think their way through these things as to how one might make these types of transitions. But there's no doubt that it's very hard. And in fact, most countries, historically speaking, have not made the type of transition that Michael's talking about um, because culture is such a strong phenomena. And unless you can root these changes, I think, in very important reference points that everyone in a given society takes seriously, then they're going to have difficulty achieving legitimacy. And that's the key thing. You know, I think Sam's exactly right. I just want to add maybe two two quick points. Uh, one, I think, on the importance of culture, and then maybe one optimistic um, idea I have about, in a sense, finding indigenous in this way, I'll say like a local... Uh, belief that doesn't come from, say, a colonial empire, uh, especially in, in Africa, um, where I think there's some hope. So I think Sam makes like really important points at the end. He says, you know, culture is so important. The great um, uh, English historian Christopher Dawson always says that cultus is the driving force of culture. And by cultus, he means religion. And and I think, and, and again, this is in many ways, I think I quote him in my piece. This is a theme of the piece is like, we can pretend in our secular, insulated, very wealthy world that religion doesn't matter. But it actually shapes our own institutions, even though we don't necessarily believe in them. And it also shapes institutions around the world. And so one of the challenges, of course, that Dawson brings up is that our modern religion is technology, that we worship tech, you know, we worship efficiency and technology. So it's an interesting, in many ways, a class of clash of civilizations within our own civilization. Um, so here's one idea that I've been thinking about, and it's not totally articulate yet, um, but you can feel free to disagree. I, I've been thinking, you know, on this point that Sam makes, how do you, how can indigenous, how can leaders get a, a sense of their own local, that that's not only something that's imposed from the outside. And I think when you look at colonialism, say with Afri in African colonialism, I think a lot of African uh, leaders, African people 
10 from, you know, depending on where they're from, but say, let's say, for example, say British, former British colonies can tend to think of, you know, private property and rule of law and this kind of Anglo rule of law as somehow imposed from the colonial outside. Um, and so what you saw after decolonization is, was another kind of intellectual colonization of, of a German variety of Marxism, right, where they were buying into this whole uh, kind of Marxian, Marxian socialist ideas, which are also European, right? Um, and so people like George Aite were trying to make the case. Um, he was a Ghanaian economist. He's in Poverty, Inc. Uh, he's passed away um, uh, a couple of years ago. He was trying to make the, the case that there's a certain t tradition of free markets in, in like African indigenous, indigenous ideas. I think that's one thing. I kind of agree with Sam. It's a little bit hard. But I think the other option right now, and I've talked to some, um, some uh, Catholic a clergy about this is if my article is generally historically right, and I know it's very complex, and I say in the you know the essay, there's a lot, a lot of books can be written on this. Um, and as what does Lord Agnes say? The history of liberty is is a uh, is messy. What's the word he uses? It's a uh, oh, it's it's, like, it's 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 among other things the common pretext for crime. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> among other things, the common pretext for crime. Exactly. So that's per perfect. Uh, but I do think where did say England get these ideas? Well, they came from the Jewish and Christian traditions. So if you're a, say, a Catholic bishop or priest or Protestant uh, 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 pastor in Africa, an African, you don't have to accept private property, rule of law, freedom of association, um, and, and this idea of a commercial development in society and the, and the intelligibility of the universe and, and, and importance of, of the dignity of labor because the English did it. The English got it from the Jewish and Christian traditions of which you are an equal inheritor, is my point. So don't, don't reject these things because they're English colonialism, accept them because they're part of, say, the Catholic belief, the tradition of which you are, um, you are part of, uh, just like another other billion people throughout the world. It's not simply a Western idea. Uh, and I think that's maybe a way where in Africa, there's a way to bring these ideas in as part of um, a reflection of their, their deepest beliefs. And I've actually talked to like Nigerian priests about this idea. And like, you know, in some ways, Africa is the, um, the inheritor and maybe protector of Western civilization, which sounds strange, but uh, they actually thought, yeah, I think that's, that's right. So I want to turn our conversation now to Sam's essay that appears in the fall issue of Religion and Liberty, focusing on the issue of poverty. And that essay is Mistaken About Poverty. That is a review of the book Poverty by America by the sociologist Matthew <coughs> Desmond. Sam, what did you find in my, uh, Matthew Desmond's book Poverty by America? So Matthew Desmond is a Princeton sociologist who's long been active both intellectually as well as in a type of activist sense in thinking and writing and trying to address questions of poverty in America. Now, I think it's fair to say he comes from a distinctly left-wing standpoint when it comes to thinking about these types of issues. Uh, he wrote uh, some key parts of the 1619 Project's analysis of capitalism, which I've written long critiques of elsewhere, both in terms of logic as well as his command with the historical facts, etc. Uh, 
But in this book, Poverty by America, he, he argues essentially that something like 18% of the population of the United States is in poverty. Uh, he argues that this requires, not surprisingly, more government intervention into the economy, although he freely concedes the dysfunctionalities uh, associated with that. Uh, he also um, tries to make comparisons between poverty in America and poverty in other uh, developed economies, in which he argues that America is in terrible shape compared to most other uh, developed economies. Um, he makes the case for things like uh, why we need minimum wages, uh, why business should be made to accept these types of things. He argues there's a trade-off between corporate profit profits and labor costs, etc. Uh, and I'm, uh, I think it's fair to say, very critical of this particular book. And the reason I'm critical, one reason, is that the facts just don't match up. The facts just don't match up with his claims. Uh, so, for example, he doesn't make clear distinctions between absolute poverty and relative poverty. And, of course, uh, relative poverty is indeed relative, right? So people who are in relative poverty in the United States compared to wealthy people in America, those relatively po uh, poor Americans are a lot better off than a good number of um, people who are doing by European standards relatively well, let alone people who are living in developing countries. Uh, so, I, so I go through and basically critique um, primarily on the basis of measurements, statistics about these types of problems. So, for example, in 2023, the Journal of Political Economy put out a study of basically the how poverty has fared in the United States since Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs, which of course were designed to effectively uh, rid us of poverty in the United States. And their analysis of the American economy and, and poverty in America uh, since the Great Society programs is that they basically say there is no absolute poverty in America. Statistically speaking, the war against serious poverty, absolute poverty, has effectively been won. And that's an amazing achievement. And it doesn't match uh, the types of arguments that Desmond proposes in his particular books. Now, he, he, it should be said that this general political economy study points out that relative poverty reductions have been modest. So it's not like suddenly everyone is living a upper middle class lifestyle. That's not true. Uh, but they also point out that one of the things that's gone along with this massive reduction of poverty in the United States, absolute poverty we're talking about, uh, is that government dependence, dependence on government by working age adults has increased in the United States. So I think the line is something like government dependence increased over this, this period of time, the same period of time that the Great Society programs have been implemented, with the share of working age adults receiving under half their income from, mar from market sources more than doubling. So that what that means is that 
working age adults uh, who are receiving um, more than half of their income from the government has doubled. So that, and and it also shows up in particular groups, it has disproportionately manifested itself among working age males. So so what I'm trying to do here in, in my response to Desmond's book is to say, well, first of all, poverty has declined. There's no question about that. And absolute poverty doesn't exist in America. Uh, relative poverty does, but relative poverty is relative. And But the other part of the issue is that dependency upon government has grown. And that is an economic problem because it puts major strains on uh, government expenditures. It's the number one thing that's driving uh, debt, the, the our, our obscene level of national debt. And that dependency is um, <laughs> it has, has grown as a consequence of this. Now, I, I also point out that we have had periods of time in which we have reduced poverty while also reducing dependency upon government for one's income. And that period relates very much to the 1990s when a Republican Congress and a Democratic president passed significant welfare reforms that produced this optimal income, which is reducing poverty and reducing welfare dependency at the same time. So uh, I think there are a lot of different questions that come out as a consequence of Desmond's book, which I think are very easily answerable because I think many of the measurements he's using and many of the arguments he's using are simply wrong. Now, I'm not saying that um, I'm not saying that somehow he's wrong about everything. I mean, he makes some points. For example, he says that he he really concedes in his book, that a good amount of welfare spending in America goes to people who are not its intended recipients. He points out that this includes lawyers who make a lot of money out of suing the government (laughs) to get more welfare payments for their clients, as well as middle-class families who are very smart accountants, who are very skilled at extracting considerable amounts of government money from the government. He also um, points out the ways in which um, government intervention, certain forms of government intervention, particularly when it comes to things like housing, have 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 put home ownership effectively out of reach for a considerable number of Americans. So he's not wrong about everything, but what's what is interesting is that his book reflects, I would argue, the the common narrative that you hear. We've heard from a long time about poverty in America from the left. But I should mention, it's a narrative that's been embraced by some sections of the right in the United States as well. And it's empirically wrong. And I would argue that um, it's not just empirically wrong. It also reflects what happens when you turn the question of poverty over to the government. There's all sorts of things that government can do. But there's all sorts of very negative consequences that flow from that, which I think people who generally adhere to a free market view of the economy would point out. So th- these are some of the themes that I, I try to address in uh, the article, because I think that 
we're going to have a discussion about poverty in America, we need to be clear about what is absolute poverty versus relative poverty. We need to be clear about the empirics of what's actually happened in the American economy since the Great Society programs. And we also need to think about alternatives to dealing with particular manifestations of poverty that seem not to yield to some of the typical solutions that are offered by government uh, in Western countries. Sam, this is a wonderful article, and it brings to bear a lot of those facts and a lot of those distinctions that seem to get lost in this popular narrative, you know, uh, that you right. mentioned. Now, my my question is, is, is to take a step back from the facts for a second and invite you to speculate on why it is that this narrative is so compelling and so widely held, both by, by folks on the left and increasingly by folks on the right, what is it if it's if it's not empirically grounded? If this is in fact divorced from reality, what a, what makes this narrative plausible to so many folks? Well, I think there's a number of things. Um, part of it's let's call it a visual thing, right? So you can't help but go to big city cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York. Uh, Washington, D.C., and you see uh, significant numbers of homeless people. Uh, you see significant, and many of them are young men. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why it's a compelling narrative, because it fits with some people's visual experience of what it's like to live in some of the large metropolitan cities in the United States. Uh, I also think it fits with, uh, again, a type of visual thing when people go to particular parts of the United States, say parts of the Midwest, for example, where they see um, once relatively flourishing towns uh, not so flourishing. Uh, and I think that's something that confirms in people's minds that this type of poverty that Desmond purports to capture, they think, oh, this is this is proving my priors about these sorts of things. Uh, and it's also because I think we, it, it's also an ignorance question as well, right? Because um, when you have a lot of people producing some pretty good evidence to say that the type of poverty that the Great Society was designed to fix has been resolved and has been resolved for some time. Uh, ignorance of that uh, means that people tend to accept this type of popular slash populist narrative that's coming from the left and now increasing segments of, of the right. Uh, and it's also, I think, the case that those of us who believe in the capacity of markets to resolve these problems within a context of rule of law and a, a certain type of culture, et cetera, we have to get a lot better at articulating a narrative that counters this popular perception of what's happening with and what's what's going on with poverty in the United States today. Yeah, so I think this is a very this a, 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 a difficult your, your last question to Sam, and then I think Sam's answer is, is really, is I think a, highlights a, a couple of things. Um, so, you know, Desmond, Desmond wrote another book called Evicted, 
uh, where he goes and documents the problem of eviction and housing. And it, it's a it's an interesting book because he he really explains and he did something kind of interesting that he he spent time both with people being evicted and with landlords and how the landlords are trying to make money and they need they need their income to live and so he he shows how this human side of both of the problems but also just how uh, how complex and how challenging it is and one of the things i thought was very powerful uh, in in this book that my wife and i have talked about is how like one little thing goes wrong and you, you the sink's plugged and you so you use the bathtub and you don't want to tell the landlord because you don't want to have a problem. So you, and then you use the bath, then the bathtub is up. And then you've been washing out of the bathroom. And then there's the problem here. And then things pile up and you just start to begin overwhelmed. And and I think he one of the things he draws out in, in Poverty by America and in Evicted is the challenges in the United States to be poor that many of us who ha, uh, are not poor don't, maybe we don't realize. And I think this is why you asked why it's compelling. And I think it's compelling because um, we all can see like, you know, things are very expensive. There's high inflation. The food's expensive. Uh, you have to get your car fixed. And, you know, if you're vulnerable or you're poor, you can see in this, especially invicted, but also in Poverty America, you can immediately fall into a really uh, vicious cycle very quickly. And I think that, I think he's he's highlighting this point. I mean, he's not alone. I mean, Angus Eaton and Anne Case did this in Deaths of Despair. Um, uh, you know, and he says, poverty is the loss of liberty. Poverty is a diminished life and diminished personhood. Um, uh, poverty is instability. Poverty is the feeling the government's against you. This is, these, are, these are examples he gives in his book, right? Those are uh, uh, quotes are close to that. And, and, and I think that there's something that's, I think, one of the reasons it's compelling is he, he highlights the, the personal challenges uh, of, of poverty and also that it's expensive to be poor, right? It's tough to be, to be poor. Um, so I think that he, he in many ways, he, his, his focus on that uh, is that, as Sam said, we see it, we feel it, we have some sense about it, and then he pulls it out. Now, um, how then should we we think about his work? And again, I'm still working through all of his work. I mean, he's he's a you know very serious person at at Princeton. I'm I'm at the Center for Social Flourishing. We're taking his work very seriously, uh, and so I'm not ready for a full uh, uh, a critique or analysis yet. But I do think Sam makes an important point. Like, um, you could say, and this maybe is related to your question, Dan. Okay, look, you keep talking about the statistics and the data, but the facts are people are suffering. And, and I think both of those are important and distinct. Yes, people are suffering. Why is it important that his data and statistics have to be very solid? Because he's recommending action based on, upon, upon these things, not just based on anecdotes, right? So we have to take those things and we have to really look at his data uh, very carefully. Um, he writes about government abuse and, and wasted money, and then also makes the case for the government. So um, I think we have to 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 think about about these things. Um, so <clears throat> the other thing is he's very kind of supportive of the Great Society, and as as there's a lot of evidence that the the Great Society, which is <clears throat> very much an overlap between 
developing countries, right? It's a it was high what what the uh, the Yale sociologist, um, I'm sorry, anthropologist James Scott called high modernism in his excellent book Seeing Like a State. This idea uh, that somehow we could socially engineer and plan everything to solve the problems. And William Easterly writes about this in his books as well. This great society approach also had a lot of negatives, all right? And so, for example, um, we see some of the transportation going through vibrant African-American or ethnic neighborhoods, destroying those neighborhoods, uh, um, getting rid of uh, apparently terrible ten tenement housing in neighborhoods um, that Scott says would be functional order, right? but lack formal order. So the social engineer can see, and this is like, like, very sounds like very pedantic, but I think it's really insightful. Like the, the social engineer can see formal order, but he can't see the functional order of daily living. And so we got to clean those out and then put people on these massive government projects like Cabrini Green or Robert Taylor Holmes or Pruitiago and Eric, I think you should jump in here because you know so much about these, these things where you actually had social workers going to their houses, making sure there were no men there. And then we look at the problems of the family, or sorry, the problems of poverty, and we don't take seriously. I don't think Desmond takes seriously enough. And again, I, you know, I have to go through it in more detail. So maybe I, I could, I maybe I'm wrong. So it could be to discuss these things. But he does talk about the family. And he he does. I don't think he takes seriously enough the fact that the decline of marriage, the decline of fatherhood, uh, the rise of drug use, the rise of suicide, um, uh, the the deaths of despair. Um, and as Sam says, the rise of government dependency. And so part of like, I think part of what, what we have to do and what we're trying to do with the Center for Social Flourishing here at the Acton Institute is also look at, at the question similarly to the, to the developing world. So in the developing world, I'll often say people are not poor because they lack stuff. People are poor generally because they lack the institutions of justice that enable them to create prosperity in their own families and communities. And I think there's a parallel, it's obviously different, but there's a parallel here in the United States that what's causing poverty is a lack of social capital, a lack of social flourishing. If you come from a broken family, your chance of being in poverty increases exponentially. If you, if you don't have a father in the house, your chance of suicide, depression, incarceration, on and on, increases dramatically. And there's an excellent book um, uh, by Seth Kaplan uh, called Fragile Neighborhoods, uh, where he looks at the importance of place-based solutions, uh, which is very different from kind of the large-scale social engineering approach. And so in one sense, I think there's an interesting tension in, in, in Matt Desmond that, again, I need to spend more time on, but that Sam highlights there and that you brought out, uh, Dan, he really makes us pay attention to the micro. And this is something that I think has been helpful for me. And when I talk about complexity. He makes us pay attention to the micro. But then it's almost like there's two Desmonds. There's look at the problems. And then he says, okay, we have this like ideological approach, whether it's the 1619 project that doesn't, as, as Sam has talked about, doesn't like have historical, like, there's a lot of historical errors there. Uh, or the sense that, oh, the great society is our solution. I think it, it's, it's, this, is the, this is the challenge of Desmond. It's why it's compelling and frustrating, right? And, and um, how do, but what it seems to me is that it's missed is that what are the conditions that enable for human and social flourishing? And that, of course, you need a state for that. 
right? Of course, we've just talked about private property, rule of law, freedom association, but you also need communities with strong families, commercial society, education, opportunities, civil societies that are working together where people then have the opportunity to flourish. Um, if you have an adverse childhood event experience, you can, if you have up to five, it can reduce your, long, your lifespan by up to 20 years, right? There are millions of poor children who are having adverse childhood experiences, not simply because they're poor, but because they live in crime-ridden, drug-infested, um, or, or uh, neighborhoods with, with gangs, poor educational opportunities, and with no fathers in the home, with broken families. And unfortunately, I don't think the great society is innocent in actually creating the conditions for some of those very pathologies that now plague and challenge so many poor Americans. And I think we have to take that seriously if we're going to really move to way thinking about poverty. So in one sense, I like Desmond's work in that it's a great challenge and, and so concrete. And at the same time, it feels like once he gets into solutions, it's just standard social engineering fare. I don't know if you have a response. Garrick, you've thought a lot about at the, this. At the same time, of course, let's keep in mind that his empirical analysis of facts is wrong. Right. Well, then that's right? what I said. Well, that, so, and that's, so that's a serious Oh, problem. big time. Because, but and and the left are very reluctant to sort of talk about that. The other problem is that. Um, Sorry, Sam. Can I say one thing about that? This I agree because I just want to say fast, really fast. That's why it's so important. You said that because he's basing policy based on those empirical fact errors. Okay, keep going. Yes, and the other thing I was going to quickly say is that many of the social dysfunctionalities that you just talked about—the absence of father, the breakdown of marriage, uh, drug abuse, etc. Let's keep in mind that uh, the left for a long time has has had a pretty relativistic view of those sorts of things. You know, you, who are you to judge whether it's important to have fathers in the family? Who are you to judge that marriage breakdown is somehow a bad thing? How who are you to judge that people spend their time um, smoking dope or whatever it happens to be? There's a there's a basic failure on the part of the left here to talk about personal responsibility for these things, because you can't do that in progressive world. It's all about structures. It's all about group. And that's a major block that they have in the way that they think about these things. This reminds me of one of the points I've heard Charles Murray make that he makes in Coming Apart, which is you know, Sam's description of the left's thinking about what people can say and what they can articulate about these problems is one thing. But for the most part, the kind of, of people that I think we're thinking of here operate their lives in a very different way. You know, they, they live as if all the things that Sam just articulated are are true and good be, because they are. Absolutely. But they have this fear of uh, preaching what they practice for the fear of being accused of being judgmental in some uh, way, shape or form. And you know, I think there's a way that one can articulate you know, the, the 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 fallenness and brokenness of this world, that there are going to be families, no matter how much we are in favor of, and we create societal structures to support the family, there will be broken homes. Um, and it's one thing to say that, you know, okay, there are going to be these circumstances, and here's how we're going to try to address them. Um, it's another thing entirely to say that, you know, the one is not preferable to the other. Um, I, I have one more question for Sam, and I want to comment real quickly on one thing that, that Michael brought up, because it, it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, because it, it is a good example of the kind of the way that these 
people who have the social engineering view of society can can go awry. And I think it's really well wrapped up in the Pruitt-Igo housing complex that you referenced, which is this housing complex in St. Louis, Missouri. It's constructed in the early 1950s. There's around, uh, I think it's 33 11-story apartment buildings in this site in North St. Louis. It was designed by the same architect as the World Trade Center, and it was supposed to be just this this great example of what public housing could be and how we could begin to approach that problem. Milton Friedman, I always remember making this point about the public housing movement resulted in a net reduction of housing units for people in this country because of exactly what I think, Michael, you were pointing out, which is you you have these engineer types who can look and they can they they don't they see the lack of formal order. They don't see the lack of the social order, the emergent order that comes out there. And in that way, like things like Pruitt Igo end up, you know, going a, a long way to further uh, the or explicate the the, one of my favorite quotes from Friedrich Hayek, that the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really understand about what they imagine they can design. And this is just a perfect example of that design problem, right? So in these 11-story apartment buildings, uh, in, in the name of alleged efficiency, although I still have not quite been able to wrap my brain around this, the elevators only stopped on every other floor, so if you, you know, lived on the third floor, but it only stops on two and four, you either have to go to two with your groceries and walk up a flight of stairs or to four with your groceries and walk down a flight of stairs. And it wasn't long after the complex was open that people who have bad intentions realized the stairwells effectively become a trap. And the people who have their groceries or whatever they're coming home with People would just wait in the stairwells. They would mug the people who are moving between flights. And yeah, that's that's a huge problem. It is the lack of justice, is the lack of law and order within this complex. And it, it is represented in the fact that, again, it's torn down between 1972 and 76. You know, there was there were things that were there before Pruitt-Igo that were torn down to make room for Pruitt-Igo. If you go to St. Louis, Missouri now, it's just a big wide open field. There's nothing that has been built there since. And I think it is just such a perfect example of the engineering mindset applied to these kinds of problems that think, you know, we we can fix this. We have the technology. We are smart enough. And we do these things and it does not turn out the way that we intended, again, because you cannot predict all of the ways that it could possibly go wrong. And rather than you know looking at the, okay, the tenement housing that it replaced, in a lot of ways to us, from our perspective, is not ideal for the human condition. Um, but arguably was better than what replaced it. And again, you go back to that Friedman point that it, resent, it resulted in a net reduction of housing units in this country combined with the you know, NIMBY problems that we have now. We don't build enough housing. These are huge problems that we're still trying to grapple with. I, I, we're running long. I want to turn to Sam for one more question before, Michael, I come back to you for um, uh, what I want to close out with. And that is the... This, this concept of what is, you know, necessary for personal flourishing, people like Desmond, I, I will admit, I've, I've read your article, I've not read his book, focus typically on the material conditions of poverty. And there's this kind of, you know, there's a saying that you'll hear from people sometimes about, you know, kind of a there before the grace of God go I kind of comment that says, you know, I could be homeless tomorrow. And you know what? I mean, I'll speak for me. That's not really true. 
I would have to exhaust my welcome with a whole lot of family and friends uh, who would have a room or at least a couch that I could sleep on that my family could stay with for a while before we would truly would become homeless. It is it's it the material part of it is important, but the social capital part of it is so incredibly important. We talk about things like the housing crisis, uh, housing crisis, but also homelessness crisis in this country. You know, a lot of it has to do with problems like drug addiction or mental illness, but a lot of it is people who lack the social networks, who lack family support, who lack friends support, who lack other kinds of social support when they come on hard times. So one, does Desmond consider this at all? Two, um, does he have any ideas about how we might increase social capital? And assuming, you know, if he, whether he does or does not, what are your thoughts on those? And, and how do you think about increasing the kind of social capital that people need, not just in terms of addressing home, uh, poverty from a material perspective, but from the social capital perspective that's so incredibly important as well? Well, um, Desmond talks vaguely about um, importance of spirituality or the importance of, um, I guess you'd call them grassroots groups. I, I, he primarily has in mind NGOs, right, and sort of NGO activist groups. And most NGO activist groups, not all, but most of them are heavily focused upon politics and lobbying. And that's their. That's their their way of thinking about it's it's like the left in general. When they think about civil society, they think about NGOs, and NGOs are not really the civil society that uh, I think really lies at the core of fixing some of these problems. Insofar as they can be fixed, given that we are human, we live in a fallen world, etc. Um, so, what is not talked about, I think. In, certainly in a lot of the literature on the left on this subject, is the way in which government programs like the Great Society basically destroyed a good number of uh, flourishing, bottom-up civil society networks that made it harder for people to, to fall into poverty in the way that you just described with yourself, right? Because there were all these existing networks some of which were religious, some of which were cultural, some of which had sprung up over time, that were literally destroyed by things like um, great society planners in Washington, D.C., deciding that this apparently messy, unorganized uh, community that, that uh, of primarily African-American and ethnic composition, this was unorderly, this looked messy, so we need to replace it with a housing project or whatever it happens to be, right? And we and so so government played a major role in destroying a lot of those networks that were keeping a lot of people out of the type of poverty that he rightly abhors. And it seems to me that civil society is in a much better position to be able to deal with many of the non-material causes of the type of poverty that he tries to address in his book. It's also the case that a lot of those civil society institutions have become effectively um, 
more or less just only one arm removed from the state because they take so much funding from the state, which means they take on the government agendas and a way of thinking about questions of poverty. A lot of civil society institutions, including a lot of religious organizations in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, very much hitched their wagon to, well, we need top-down government solutions to this. You can see this in things like the 1986 U.S. Catholic Bishops' Letter on the Economy, which I think is, is, looks like a joke now today because of its fundamental reliance upon government for everything. The fact that so many religious organizations took on explicitly political agendas, which distracted them from much of the good work that they had hitherto been doing. So I think when it comes to dealing with these deeper problems that often have very little to do with lack of actual material resources. Civil society is the preferred vehicle, but civil society has also become very weak in America. It's certainly stronger than most other Western countries, but it's become considerably weaker. And that, I think, is uh, got, has got to be part of the way forward in dealing with the types of poverty that we're talking about because they don't yield themselves to things like income redistribution. They don't yield themselves to these different types of government programs that are designed to reduce poverty because governments, I think Michael's point about seeing like a state, by definition are not very good at seeing these types of things, which are hard to measure. They're very hard to measure. And I think a lot of people on the left, I mean, I've been talking about empirics, but a lot of people um, who are in, into, whether they're on the right or on the left, into government intervention to solve some of these problems, they don't pay attention to the fact that a lot of these problems stem from causes that are not easily yieldable to empirical measurement. And for that reason, they don't exist in the minds of some of these people. I think this is a good uh, segue to where I want to close uh, the show uh, which is back to you, Michael. Sam said something in there that always sticks out to me, which is I, I have this allergy now to the way people talk about some of these problems because they talk about it in terms of how do we fix poverty? What are the solutions to poverty? And to you know, quote Thomas Sowell, that like you know, if it's uh, to a certain extent, some of these problems, if they don't have solutions, they're not problems. They are just um, you know a characteristic of existing. Which is one of the reasons why I like the Acton's, you know, new center, the Center for Social Flourishing, because I think it, it it is thinking in the same vein, right? That like, you know, poverty is not something that is going to be solved. We will someday be able to declare victory over, you know, it, it, in some sense, because it is a relative thing. You know, you're always going to have a bottom 10% in any society. Um, but I, I, it's one of the reasons why I like the approach that we have here at the Acton Institute. So, uh, uh, being as you are the, the, the boss, the head man, the top dog, the big cheese, the head honcho at this new center for social flourishing. You can call me Hefe. Uh, I shall call you Hefe. Uh, please tell us about the center for social flourishing, the work that you guys are doing and, and plan on doing, uh, for all of our listeners. Uh, thanks, Eric. And thanks, uh. Dan and Sam for the good conversation. Um, so the Center for Social Flourishing, I think it, you you actually kind of set it up that as we thought about, we want to address questions of, so we've done this poverty care project that addressed poverty in the developing world. Um, and many people said, well, what about poverty in the United States? How, how, do you, how do you think about that? So we spent a lot of time thinking what kind of name to give this 
the center. Um, and we didn't, we intentionally didn't want to talk about poverty, partially because it sounds like an 80s problem, like, but it's also part of the social engineering issue um, of like fixing poverty, how are we going to fix poverty? And it, it really turns people into problems uh, and to technical solutions. And so the idea of so social flourishing is that, you know, we, we want to help create the conditions for human and social flourishing where people can get better. And if I asked you, Eric, or Sam or Dan, uh, what areas in your life uh, are, are going well, or you feel like you're flourishing, what areas of your life are not going as well as you want, where all of us are going to have places in our life where we need to flourish more, where we can grow. And so part of the idea was both, it's both a conditions that's a positive way of thinking about the problem and also aspirational that we all need to improve in social flourishing. There's not like, and I think just as we're never going to end poverty forever, we're never going to create the perfect good society, uh, but we all can strive for relatively just and better societies with more opportunities for flourishing. And it also takes into account the fact that poverty, as you and Sam said, I think, well, is not simply a material problem. Because we actually have a lot of people in the United States who are materially well off, who are committing suicide, who are depressed, who are lonely, who are drug addicts. It's not just poor people, right? And so um, what was a line, maybe Sam can remember that, or you, the Mother Teresa had this line about like, some of the greatest poverty she's ever seen is in the United States. And she doesn't just mean material poverty. She means a certain kind of brokenness, family breakdown and, and um, human breakdown. And so what we wanted to do with the Center for Social Flourishing is really take into account, rooted in Acton's vision of the human person as creating the image of God with freedom and responsibility and will and the characteristics embodied and embedded uh, human persons uh, with a social nature. We won the bingo game. Um, that what, what are the conditions that help people and families flourish? And, and in that sense, it's not, uh, it's not simply about material poverty, but really about helping to create the conditions uh, where, where each of us has uh, opportunity to live out our vocation. And it's not, uh, you know, look, it sounds in many ways maybe utopia. It's not utopian. We realize there's always going to be poverty. There's always going to be need. There's always going to be sin. There's always going to be tragedy. There's always going to be need for human love. And, um, but it's in, it's in whether it's helping the poor or, or helping the wealthy or, or helping the, the young or the elderly, love and community and social flourishing and institutions of justice are always essential. And we wanted to try to create a holistic way of seeing that. And part of that actually has to do with, you know, we're doing a new film and uh, building a, a new website and working on issue pages and a lot of the, 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 the topics that we talked about from homelessness to incarceration to drug, but also um, encouraging civil society. That's a, a, a one of the things we really want to work on is encouraging civil society responses to this, where uh, people are in fact, um, as Seth Kaplan says, building you know place-based solutions uh, to help people in their own uh, neighborhoods to have opportunities to flourish. So that's our, our, our kind of our generally big vision. Uh, does that help answer the question? It does. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It was fun. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes where you're going to find a link that you can use to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind, or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. 
I again want to encourage you to subscribe to our magazine, Religion and Liberty, where you can read not only Michael and Sam's great essays that we discussed today, but other great pieces by Marvin Alasky, Rachel Ferguson, Philip Booth, and many more. Only $29.99 will get you four issues of our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times a year. Look for a link in the show notes where you can subscribe. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Michael. Thanks to Sam. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.